Well, it's good to hear about uh, the missionaries, missionaries that we support, both part of the fellowship we're connected with, which is the North American Baptist denomination, and uh, ones that are beyond uh, NAB as well. We're glad you're here today. My name's Shell. I'm the pastor here at Pilgrim. And again, I'm delighted that you're here this morning. I always am. It's an honor to be here uh, as your pastor as well. Um, a few things before we get into the teaching time uh, this morning. One is uh, the, I forgot to mention, I should have stood in the middle too. I'm working with two students at the North American Baptist Seminary in Sioux Falls called Sioux Falls Seminary Now, uh, who are as an affiliate, I'm an affiliate faculty. I've done adjunct teaching before, but helping them, sort of coaching them with their program. They have a new Masters of Divinity program that you can do sort of tailoring. And so I'm one of their three support team members. Um, and so, yeah, that's exciting to be working a little bit with the NAB Seminary again. Other things to remind you of, uh, Monday is a holiday, so I'm not doing, normally I try to make Monday nights open to anybody who wants to meet up for coffee or whatever, uh, but it's Labor Day, so I'm going to not do any labor on Labor Day, amen? Um, not that it's that hard to meet up and talk, but you know, uh, so, or if you want to do coffee tomorrow night, you're buying, okay. Um, also want to remind you, the end of October, we're going to do another prayer emphasis. Uh, the, we've been adding in the World Christian. If you go to their website, worldchristian.org, there are different prayer emphases throughout the year. We did the 30 days for Muslims during Ramadan. Uh, we're going to do 15 days for the Hindu world. That comes up again sort of the end of October, and I believe that's during Diwali uh, festival. And so, and then we're going to add in uh, 15 days prayer for Buddhists uh, this year as well, although I think that's in the new year. So those cycles are coming up for prayer emphasis. And then finally, next Sunday, we'll be getting into a new series in September. Um, We've just finished, sort of paused a topical series on Under the Rug, but we're going to talk about the mission, vision, and values that we share at Pilgrim Church. We had a team of leaders that sort of revamped our mission statement and, and, gave, and created a new vision and value statement, and we want to teach through that as a source of our unity. So when people say, well, what is Pilgrim Church all about? The answer is not the first thing that pops in your head, uh, you know, whatever that may be, but, but rather it's this becomes the first thing that pops in your head. Well, our mission is this, and our, our vision, and we have one sentence of vision, and it has like four key words in it, and then there's values that we would point to and say, this is who we are, and this is who we are becoming. Of course, we're a Christian church in the uh, orthodox little O, uh, you know, believe in all of the historical things about Jesus church. Of course, we believe in sharing Jesus evangelical. We believe in, in the work of God, and we believe in personal coming to faith and conversion, all that, and the authority of Scripture, but that we have something that talks more specifically about who we are as a body. So we're going to get into that next Sunday and unpack that through September. I'm excited about that. There will be one pause when we are doing a pulpit swap with one of our sister churches on September 23rd uh, with Ebenezer. We'll be, I'll be there, and their pastor will be here, um, and so we're finalizing the details on that still, but I wanted you to know about that. Well, great. So this morning, we're going to jump into John. We have been doing some verse-by-verse. We rotate topical and then verse-by-verse series through a book of the Bible. We've been in the second half of John called the Book of Glory. If you have a Bible, uh, please turn to uh, John chapter 14. There are blue Bibles in the pew backs in front of you as well. Uh, You can look there. Uh, Or if you want to look on your phone, if you heard last week's message, you know there's dangers inherent in that. But if you want to look on your phone, go to John 14. Uh, As you're turning there this morning... 
if you're new or new to looking at a Bible, paper Bible, uh, it's the Gospels are the beginning of the New Testament. They're the four books that record Jesus' life and teachings most directly. They're biography, ancient-style biography. Um, and so this is the first part of the New Testament. It's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Uh, and you can find John easily. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they're pretty big books in the New Testament. A lot of the books are smaller, and so you can get lost in them. Uh, but easy to find. So we're going to look at John chapter 14 this morning. Are you awake? Please say yes if you are. Um, before I say anything else, though, we have two students who are back, or summer travelers, I think. Is Shannon here today? No, she, oh, there she is back there. Everybody look at Shannon. Say hello, Shannon. She was serving in Hong Kong doing teaching. That, that was a great wave. That's, uh, she's ready for royalty. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so she is back uh, like a week or so. And then also Claire, uh, wave Claire to Bergen. I always murder her last name. Say your last name. T. Bergen. T. Bergen. What's that? Okay. Well, let's stick with English. I don't know what I said. Probably <laughs> shellish. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and you were going traveling throughout Europe, but also serving uh, this summer for a couple weeks at, at the a month. And, and we're going to hear from Claire one of these Sundays. She's going to share her story um, about serving with a camp in Romania that our church has been involved with, our former pastor, and also um, short-term missions have been involved in this camp in Romania, helping minister to kids and youth and young adults and churches uh, in Romania in reaching folks for Jesus in sort of post-Christian Romania. So, good stuff. Welcome back. Let's give them a hand. Yay. We're glad they're back. Yay. I'm sure they have all kinds of stories. Uh, Just ask and they'll let you know. So John chapter 14, uh, Joshua Ryan Butler in his work, The Pursuing God, uh, says this, that while every analogy, thing that you use to compare something to sort of understand it, every analogy of Trinity, God as three and one and one and three, has limitations, he gives this illustration of a picture of the triune God that they're all on the same team, as it were. He uses a story, he says, say a family is trapped in a forest fire. I read this and I was thinking RBC situation. And so a helicopter team comes in to undertake a rescue. And one fireman is flying the helicopter over the smoky blaze to coordinate the operation and, over to, and to see the whole big picture. A second fireman, so one's flying the helicopter, a second fireman descends on the rope into a billowing smoke below to track down the family and to stand with them. And once the second fireman locates the family, he wraps the rope around them And attaching them to himself and them together with the rope, they're lifted up from the blaze into safety. He goes on and says, in this rescue operation, the first fireman looks like God the Father, who can see the whole field unclouded from above and sovereignly orchestrates this plan. So the second fireman kind of looks like the sun, who descends into our world ablaze to find us, the human family, and identify us with us most deeply in darkness, in the darkness of the grave and the smoke. And he says, the spirit is sort of like the rope who mediates the presence of the father to Jesus, even in his distance, and raises Jesus and the human family with him. From sin and death and the grave, brokenness, destruction to the presence of the father. Now, of course, This analogy, like all analogies, is not perfect because the Spirit is identified as more than a rope in Scripture. The Spirit is a person of the Trinity, uh, fully divine and fully a member of the Trinity. 
is not a thing. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit are not separate individuals, but also one, in a sense, sharing the same divine nature and essence as one being. As we look at John chapter 14, Jesus has been teaching with his disciples. The last half of John, before it gets to his cross, his death on the cross, resurrection, and all that, he shifts his teaching into more intimate uh, with his disciples, the small group and a larger group of disciples. But it's called the discipleship discourse in some Bible commentators or his last sermons to his disciples. There's various ways to name it. But that's what we're in, the section we're in in John. Jesus has turned from his public ministry. Now he's preparing his disciples for what's going to happen at his death, resurrection, and afterwards. Now most of this they do not fully grasp until later. And so the gospel writers are writing after the resurrection event and after the Pentecost event of the sending of the Spirit and, and filling in these details so that those of us that come later might understand what happened at the time. And so Jesus is here teaching in John 14 there. We've read through verses uh, 15 already, 1 through 15 in earlier teaching, uh, rather 1 through 14 in earlier teaching. We're going to pick up in verse 15 uh, today. And so I'm going to read it once. uh, And and in fact, if you're willing to stand one more time so I know the blood is flowing uh, and you're not asleep. All right, great, wonderful, good. If you're not able to, that's totally cool too. But yeah, we want to read together. So I think I'm just going to read it out loud, and will you follow along with me? He said, uh, I'm going to jump to verse 15, actually. Sorry, on the screen there. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Then I will ask the Father, he means God the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he resides with you and will be in you. I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, the world will not see me any longer, but you will see me because I live and you will live too. You will know at that time that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. The person who has my commandments and obeys them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. I'm just going to do that short section this morning because we're going to conclude with communion. But let's pray, and then we're going to dig in. Would you join me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that by the Spirit you rebreathe what you divinely inspired these ancient writers to record. And as John testifies that he is one who is writing this down, that we might know, that we might experience, that we might believe, uh, may that also happen today. And as much as we can wrestle with ancient literary criticism and, and that those things are certainly good and appropriate, at the end of it all, there is a time when we must make a decision with you and with the text before us. And Holy Spirit, Move in this place today. And God, I can't do this in my own strength. I'm just a man. I'm a saint and sinner in process like everyone else here. Lord, I didn't come down from the mountain. I am not a mediator between them and you. I'm an Ephesians 4 pastor teacher here to equip and encourage the saints for the work of the ministry through the teaching of the word and through living it in community. And so, Holy Spirit, I I just invite you to move like you already have in worship and prayers and fellowship and this week and 
all the different ways we live as believers out in the world. But we've gathered in your name. Do your thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. I think I'm going to kick this monitor down because I'm afraid I'm going to just step on this bad boy and it's going to end poorly for one of us. There we go. Okay. All right. John 14. This is one of the farewell discourses, another way to name this, his final teachings, his farewell discourses, going over subjects for them to prepare them for his leaving. There's some common subjects that come up here. See here, get all adjusted. Well, maybe that's it. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Don't you feel, isn't that way better? I feel that's better. Um, There's some common subjects here. Real quick, love. And this has been brought up in this book of glory again and again and again, love. Obedience. Not a word that we like, at least not in the modern world. And, and finally, this idea of keeping the commandments, the obedience, and then the Holy Spirit. So love, obedience, related to the commandments of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, the three things. So let's drill into this, and we're just going to simply walk through some verses today and ask, what did it mean and what does it mean for us this morning? So would you join with me this morning? Let's look at verse 15 again, if you're following along in your Bible. He said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Say, okay, that's pretty simple, but let's meditate on it just for a moment. It's telling us that love entails an action, or as some people like to say, love is a verb. I can say I have emotional feelings towards my wife, but if that never translates into kind action, does she actually know, or are we just playing some sort of language game? In order for love to have meaning, it must put on flesh. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you love me, obey what I have taught you. Now, he's not saying necessarily that those things will save them, but it is an indication that they are saved, that they're responding to the love of God at work within them. And so in some ways, the love that he's given to them ahead of time is empowering them to do what he's asking them to do. So it's that love that he's already poured into them or will display most fully on the cross, which they're about to experience very shortly. But that love then dwells within them and empowers them in order to obey. But they still have a choice. God's love in you doesn't force you to love him back. He doesn't force you to act and to live those things out. You have a choice. For John, again, this idea of love, it's not simply an emotion, but it's a moral action. It's things we do. I have a bit of Mennonite background in me, and Mennonites were very big on this idea of the ethics of Jesus. It's not good enough to just say, my heart was warmed, or I had a tingly sensation. Those things are wonderful, and when they come, celebrate them, but they're to help remind you and empower you to then do the deeds that he calls you to do as a follower of Jesus. So the Sermon on the Mount is super important in understanding what does love look like? How does love act? I read an American pastor this week that I follow in he said, I've something, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said, I find it funny that so many Christians fought about having the Ten Commandments on buildings, when in fact, and, and, and he, was, he was sort of lamenting and calling them out by saying, but the reality is they should be calling for the Beatitudes to be on the buildings. <laughs> if you're going to ask for public monuments to be displayed for Christianity, it ought to be the teachings of, the straight teachings of Jesus Christ, blessed are the peacemakers. Can you imagine that on a memorial to, well, yeah, anyway, go down that rabbit trail. He said, but to obey my commandments... My commandments are Jesus' commandments, the standard, and they trump all other commandments. In fact, we read the Old Testament through Jesus. That's why knowing Jesus' teachings matters as a believer, digging into the Sermon on the Mount, understanding 
he actually modifies some of the Old Testament law, nullifies some of it, and reinforces some of it. So it's important that we read the Old Testament through the New Testament. My commandments, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Bruner, uh, a biblical scholar, says this, by the way, to give us some hope. He says, to want to believe is an authentic form of believing. To want to believe is an authentic form of believing. If you want to believe, that's actually already a step of faith. That's good news for a lot of us. He says, to want to love is a legitimate way of beginning to love. Lord, I want to learn to love my enemies. That's actually opening the posture of your heart to let the Spirit begin to work within you. He says, to want to love is a legitimate way of beginning to love. And he adds, sort of off to the side parenthetically, he says, all disciples want to do what Jesus says, and not many of us will ever honestly feel that we fully do what Jesus says. And I think that's the tension of our saint and sinner, as Luther would say, in process, the life to come. Mark Battison tells this story, he relays this. He says, you might not know the name Angelo Dundee, but you've undoubtedly heard of Muhammad Ali. How many of you have heard of Muhammad Ali? Unless you've been under a rock in the last 30, 40, 50, whatever. Yeah. Muhammad Ali, sting like a butterfly, or what is it? Sting like a butterfly, fly like a bee. No, no, flip that, flip that. (laughs) Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Muhammad Ali. Probably the most famous professional boxer of all time. And he said, for more than two decades, Angelo Dundee was in Muhammad Ali's corner, literally in the corner. He was Ali's corner man in boxing. He's the one who made Ali float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. He also trained 15 other world boxing champions. Angelo Dundee described his job as a corner man this way, when you're working with a fighter, you're the surgeon, an engineer, and a psychologist. As we get to the next verse, we learn that as followers of Jesus, we have something even better than a surgeon, engineer, psychologist in our corner. We have the Holy Spirit. Verse 16. Then, Jesus speaking, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, or paraclete, to use the Greek word in English, to be with you forever. Then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, the paraclete, to be with you forever. If there's a key verse in this passage this morning that I really want you to zone in on, it's probably this one. All of them are good, mind you, and important in the word of God, but this is really good stuff. Jesus is preparing them for his departure, and they don't fully understand it. And he introduces this term paraclete here, It's not a common term in John. In fact, it's used four other times in the Gospel of John and once in 1 John. And it's used nowhere else in the New Testament. And so I kind of want to sit up and pay attention if John's using a word somewhat repetitively about something unique about God and ask, what is going on with this word paraclete? If you want to say it with me, say paraclete. That's sort of an anglicized version of parakletos. And this word is intentional. Uh, Vanier says this, the word paraclete can be translated as advocate as well as comforter, counselor, we might add encourager or helper. So the range of meaning for this word based on how it was used in other ancient Greek texts, advocate, comforter, counselor, encourager, and helper. It's one who answers the call. It's a beautiful name that God is revealing about who he is and who Jesus has been to them. He's naming, this is who I've been to you, disciples. I'm about to go, but you're not going to be alone. Help is on the way. 
He said, God is the one, Vanier goes on, said, God is the one who answers the cry of the weak and those in need. A mother is a paraclete for her child when she answers the cry of her little one and holds and loves him or her. Every time we look after a person in need and answer their cry, we become paracletes, little paracletes. Bruner also reports that Luther uh, translated this word, the truster or the truster, the encourage, the one who encourages trust as well. Advocate, as someone who comes alongside as a testimony, bringing proper testimony for you in a, in a legal proceeding in the ancient world. Not necessarily your lawyer, but one who would come with testimony. A, a comforter, a counselor, an encourager, a helper, the paracletes. Uh, Jean goes on and says, paracletus, the Latin form, is different from spiritus. Spiritus or spirit breath, pneuma in Greek, implies movement. It's wind or breath. It's the enthusiasm of the prophets, the gifts of the spirit in operation. But the paraclete is another aspect of God that comes alongside in this strengthening and comforting role. He says the paraclete takes away the anguish of loneliness. And this will blow our Baptist minds, but he says she brings presence even though the word paraclete is as masculine in Greek, but whatever, we'll just go with it. Uh, Brings presence, security, peace, and communion. Spiritus and paracletus are two aspects of God who lives and acts in us. Thank you for letting me geek out on that one. The relational aspects of the spirit working in us and through us to manifest love and act beyond our emotional state, though paraclete comes to help. I don't know about you, but I need the work of the Spirit in this role of encourager sometimes to love certain people, to forgive enemies, to become the friends of those who are different, to be open to those of a different way of doing things. Both John and Luke in the Gospels emphasize the work of Christ as his Spirit-filled humanity. In Philippians 2, we see Jesus emptying himself of some of his divine powers while still remaining fully divine. And John and Luke seem to indicate that in Christ, the Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, has rest on Christ fully. That he is an example of the fullness of a human being empowered by the Holy Spirit. That a lot of what he's doing isn't simply out of his former uh, divine powers that that he laid down in Philippians 2, but he's actually modeling a human, his human side, but fully, sinlessly open to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the language that is used is that he has in him the, like this, this overflowing fullness of the Spirit in John 1.32 and 3.34 and Luke 4.18. Another guy says that one of the best biblical scholars says that one of the best ways to look at this paraclete is not to even translate the word advocate, comfort, or counselor, but to use just the word paraclete because it entails all of these, and our English words don't quite get them all put together as just thinking of the word paraclete and these different meanings do. And so the paraclete is still to come, Jesus tells him. The spirit has been at work, but a much fuller experience of the spirit will come only after Jesus dies, rises from the dead, and then we see this in the time of Pentecost, the fullness of the spirit. He's telling him, this is coming, help is on the way. Would you look at your neighbor and say, help is on the way? I don't know what you're going through this morning. And I don't know what situations you face, but... Jesus' promise to them is also to you, help is on the way. And in fact, we live post-resurrection. It's already here. Help is on the way. Help is on the way. He's moving. He's acting by his spirit. 
The paraclete also has a unique role, we read here, to convict the world of sin. We'll read that later, uh, not this morning, but to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He says here, look at the verses, verse 17, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept, but it does not see him, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he resides with you and will be in you. In verse 17, there's a shift in the teaching, and it tells us here that the spirit of truth that he's talking about, the paraclete, has been around them in the person of Jesus, and without measure, the spirit was given to Jesus when he was on earth. And now he's saying that once he leaves, there will be a spirit, the spirit will come and dwell within them. And we speak about this as conversion and the ongoing fillings of the spirit that Paul speaks about in Ephesians 5.18, that there's this openness to the work of the spirit. And in conversion, God's spirit, the spirit comes and dwells within us. Right now, they don't have the spirit in them because until he does his work of the cross, showing the absolute humility of God, taking on all the sinfulness of the world backwards and forwards in time, until that happens, and then the Spirit and the Father, he's justified because he is sinless, and he's the Son of God, and that he's raised from the dead, and he takes up his life again. Until those events happen, the Spirit it cannot come and dwell because the Spirit is poured out only through that work of Jesus on the cross. And so the work of the Spirit in Pentecost is intimately, directly tied to the work of Jesus and his death and resurrection. And he said, right now you have the Spirit all around you because of what I'm doing. And in the Old Testament, the Spirit would be poured out on individuals in that sort of spiritus uh, prophetic power for a moment. But no one lived with the Spirit uh, within them, poured out on them. But as far as a dwelling of the Spirit continually within them in the Old Testament, that didn't happen until Jesus does his work at Calvary. You'd see examples of this. Samson was filled with the Spirit, to, or filled or poured out on the Spirit, but it wasn't dwelling within him to do some activity. The prophets, the Spirit would come upon them and they would prophesy, or they would do these dramatic acts, or there would be healings or, or wonders here and there, but they did not walk in that state continually. The promise for the New Testament believer is that the Spirit of God would not simply fall upon you for certain acts and occasions and pieces here and there. That would continue for sure, but now the very Spirit of God would reside within you, and you become a living temple of the Holy Spirit. And that one of the aspects of that to lean into is the Spirit as paraclete, the comforter, the advocate, the helper, not just the anointer and empowerer. Those are important, especially Luke Acts talks about this, but also this alongside and insight and comforting and strengthening ministry. You are never alone because the spirit of Jesus dwells within you as a believer and he is there to encourage you. And when you pray, you are connecting his spirit and your spirit and you are communing with the very power. You are a walking temple. It's whether or not you will access that power and that relationship is the real choice as a believer. I know this may weird you out, but look at your neighbor and say, you are a temple. (laughs) Some of you younger guys who are prideful, don't take that to your head too much. Okay, no. (laughs) Of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Uh, Let's continue on. He says spirit of truth in verse 17. Let's just talk about that for a second. The spirit of truth. There's five ways that... Andreas Kostenberger talks about this. He says, there's the truthfulness of the Spirit versus falsehood. That the Spirit will help us to understand and sometimes represent facts to us as we actually are, not as we may think we are. There's an aspect of the Spirit's ministry of truth that is about just truthfulness versus falsehood. 
And this is good news for those of us wrestling with how do we share Jesus in post-Christendom, especially when the church has blown it, blown it so many times, that his spirit is ultimately there to reveal truthfulness versus falsehood. And is at work in the world. The second thing is truth as full and final uh, expression of Jesus. The spirit leads to a full truth about who Jesus is. The spirit is doing this work. It's not just up to us. It's also his work. The third thing is an identified body of knowledge. Uh, Kostenberger says, as an identified body of knowledge that the Spirit will help leave some of what's being recorded in what we have as Scripture later on, we see that in operation. The fourth area of truth, he says, is a sphere of operation, that the Spirit operates in this idea of truth as an encounter, as an experience as well, not just propositions and statements, but also an encounter, an experience of truth, like Jesus says, I am truth. And the fifth aspect of the Spirit is this relationship faithfulness, that the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth is trustworthy, is faithful. He's there, he's wooing, he's drawing, he's convicting, he's calling us in. The spirit of relationship faithfulness as spirit of truth. In all five aspects, the spirit will represent Jesus in our lives. So let's get to the last half this morning, 18 through 21. Look at this scripture here. He says, Jesus is talking to them again. He's going to be leaving them, but he tells them, I will not abandon, abandon you as orphans, but I will come to you. I will not abandon you as orphans, but I will come to you. This coming word and what his coming to them, uh, the church has talked about the doctrine of the parousia or the, the, the coming along, the coming again, the revealing presence or the arrival, the official visit of Jesus. He says, I will come to you. He's telling them, I'm going to leave you. You're, you're, you might feel orphaned, but guess what? I will come to you. And there's three things that can be defended in terms of John 14 of what this refers to. One of them, of course, is that he will be resurrected in the end of John and the Gospels, the Easter story, that he will come after he dies on the cross and literally spends some days revealing himself, Paul says, to over 500 people. There's that immediate coming where he will come after his death and resurrection before he ascends into heaven finally for the final time. That, that sense... There's the second coming of Jesus in terms of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. After Jesus reveals himself after his resurrection, he sends the Spirit at Pentecost. And in that sense, it also talks about that, which which referred to, we just read in verse 16 and 17. So coming through the Spirit. And then finally, the third sense of coming here is the final end, which this chapter began with in verses 2 and 3, that one day Jesus will come again to all people everywhere for all time, literally, visibly, and come and bring heaven and earth together and and begin the final judgment and all of that that's going to happen. Chances are that he's mainly referring to that third coming, the final coming of Jesus, but the other two also are valuable and and can be seen in this text as well. So I would like to say all three of these comings or returnings of Jesus can be defended. What, What you need to get, though, I think for me, the big takeaway in this verse 18, I will not abandon you as orphans, I will come to you, is that Christianity is not a religion of an absent God. It is a God who is constantly drawing and coming near to us. And the work of the Spirit is what that does, is how that happens until Jesus comes again. Let's talk a little more about 19 and 20. Verse 19, he says, In a little while the world will not see me any longer, but you will see me because I live and you will live too. So again, he's talking about this idea of Jesus' life after the resurrection, that unless you receive Christ, you don't see him in that sense. But if you do receive him, the Spirit gives you spiritual eyes to begin to comprehend that he is alive and at work in the world. And so he's just stating this to them. 
which will make more sense later on when they experience that fullness of the Spirit. And he says, you will know at that time that I am in the Father, and the Father and you are in me, and that I am in you. Oh, wow, that's quite a word phrase, right? What's he saying? He's talking about this mutual indwelling by the Spirit, that you are not just body, but you are also spirit and mind, all woven together, spirit and body woven together. And that because of that, his Spirit can actually reside within you, and in a sense, you're residing in Christ. Paul uses this language a lot too, and, and, and uh, Peter talks about being uh, take, partaking of the divine nature, this theosis, that, we, that we, there's an interaction, a relational connection that happens when we become believers and we continue to walk, and that in fact we can grow in that connection as well. So after Jesus' resurrection, and I know it's a bit deep theology, but hang with me, he says after that you will come to a fuller knowledge of who God is, the nature of the relationship of God, and in fact, a new state will exist between the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the disciples, and all who will follow all the way after until he comes again. That the nature of our relationship changes because of what he does in the cross and resurrection and the sending of the Spirit. Verse 21 drills us a little more. He said, The person who has my commandments and obeys them is like is the one who loves me. So you see this enveloping, or it's called an inclusio from verse 15 out of verse 21 that sort of rounds out this little section. He says, the person who has my commandments and obeys them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. As we move into this aspect, as the old hymn says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to Stand, oh, oh, wow, we hit like five different keys there, but all right. But to trust and obey, trust and obey. Okay. A new state exists as we lean into that. As we learn the commands of Jesus and we live them out, we grow in our relationship. Paul said we go from glory to glory. John says, I will love him and reveal myself to him. There's an ongoing revealing that happens as we lean into this relationship. Some of us are list people, and there's a time and place for lists in Scripture. But John is saying that the relationship, as we lean into it and we obey, we are looking to experience more and to learn more about who he is. And so it's not simply about ticking off simply the right ethical behaviors, but understand that as we obey, we're actually building that relationship. The things that Jesus teaches us to do are not dry commandments, sort of like the law, but they're what sustain covenant real relationship. And so it's called the law of love, Jesus' law of love, and then he teases out what that looks like in his teachings. And and so as we lean into that, it's what enables us to flourish and makes human life worth living. And these are the things he calls us to do. Christianity is not simply about an ethical moral system, but we teach these things because they tell us this is what sustains a real relationship. This is what true friendship looks like. This is what real marriage looks like. This is what being a good neighbor looks like. These things make you come alive and make being human all that God intended. He says, as you obey my commandments, you experience my love. You will be loved by my Father, and I will love you and reveal myself to you from glory to glory and increase experience of him. I will make myself more and more known or real. Let me pause for a second and go back to verse 16, then we're going to land this. He says, Then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. To emphasize this, 
Jesus is their first advocate. And the work of the Spirit, as A.W. Tozer said, is to make Jesus real. And so this advocate or parakletos, paraclete ministry of God, is not just the work of the Spirit, it is also the work of the Son, and the Spirit is taking over that role on earth until the Son comes again in glory. John tells us in his writings, in his letters, he tells us that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and and the creed puts it, summarizes it this way, that he lives, Jesus lives to make intercession for us, that right now we have an advocate with the Father in heaven, and after Pentecost, we have an advocate right here on earth in the Holy Spirit, who is also the Spirit of Jesus. You've got an advocate in heaven from the accuser, meaning the works of the enemy, the evil one's spiritual warfare, your own brokenness. There's an advocate in heaven, Jesus, who we can pray to, and he's already answered the prayer in terms of sending his Spirit until he comes again. So you've got two advocates and the Spirit is mirroring the advocate role of Jesus on earth. Would you say it with me? Help is on the way. Say it like you mean it. Help is on the way. Pretend you're a good Southern Baptist. Help is on the way. I know you're not ready for that. Everybody's like, he went Pentecostal on us. No, Southern Baptist. Jeez, there's others. (laughs) Help is on the way. Look at your neighbor and say, help is on the way. The paraclete has come and is coming. So here are the takeouts this morning. And I will invite our worship team person, maybe, to come on up. I want you to remember this out of this passage. That God is the paraclete God. And again, the range of that word, he's a counselor, he's your advocate, he's a comforter, he's an encourager, he comes alongside, and he's the one who will live inside of you if you welcome Jesus into your life. He comes and dwells in you by the Spirit at conversion. When you believe in Jesus Christ and say, I'm going to take that step of faith, Lord, I turn to you, whether it's this kind of prayer, admit I've sinned, made myself God, worshipped other gods, said, Lord, forgive me for doing that. I want the one true God to live in me. If you believe that Jesus is your God, he committed no sin. He died in your place on a criminal's cross. You, you, you lean into that, what happened historically in real time on planet Earth, and you confess him as your Lord and say, Lord, Jesus, I want you to lead my life. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to come on in. I don't understand it all. At that time, when you do that, his spirit comes and dwells within you in that moment. And that's conversion. That's the beginning. And we continue to lean into that throughout our lives. So this morning, know that he is the paraclete God. The second thing I want you to leave with this morning is that he is the one who leads us into truth. The spirit of God is the spirit of truth. Paul talks about in Romans 1 that God's spirit is at work everywhere throughout creation and that he's wooing and he's drawing. And some have hardened their hearts against that work, but that that is part of the spirit work of truth. All truth is God's truth. The spirit is at work but he doesn't force us into those final steps of having relationship because relationship requires freedom. And then finally, I want you to understand that Jesus comes to us in these ways through the Holy Spirit, through truth out in the world and in the scriptures, the revelation, and in the church when it's rightly ordered and not messing up, which the church is prone to do because we are sinners in process as well. That's why openness and transparency matter immensely in our structures And again, literally and visibly, one day Jesus will come again. And the Spirit, elsewhere in the New Testament, is referred to as a deposit or a down payment for us to know that one day he will, Jesus himself, will come again fully. So the Spirit is a deposit on that. And so this morning, as we will turn to communion in just a moment, 
I challenge you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that maybe this is your day to say, Jesus, I've responded to your call. Maybe it's been an encounter, an experience. Maybe it's been wrestling with the truth of history and the impact of Christ. There's many different routes to Jesus, but this might be your morning to say, Jesus, I I call on you. And, And believing in him is really beginning by calling on him. I want to believe in you. I do believe in you. Help me to believe. If this is it, I encourage you to pray that prayer. You can do it in the stillness of your mind. You can pray with us afterwards. Find someone who's doing something up here. They can help you as well. Our elders, leaders. And for all of us, you are not alone. Help is on the way. The comforter is here. The counselor is here. The encourager is here. That is a work of the paraclete ministry of our loving God. Hear that word this morning. That is great. Good news. You're not alone. Help is on the way. In fact, he's already here. We're going to move into a time of communion this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen.